0: I mean, to do right is not just about making the vehicle safe. It's about making sure the city can trust that it will be there in the future, and that's just as important as the safety.
1: That's actually a really good point. Is that I think that some of the so cities first got a big wake up call and kind of smacked around a little bit when ride hailing like burst onto the scene, and we're all like, oh, they learned their lesson. And when scooters came on board, they like really started exerting their power and learning. And now the third wave would potentially third and fourth wave is potentially autonomous vehicles and uh, what I call future of flight <laughs> and <laughs> and yeah. in those and in those two cases, like the stakes are even higher. Hopefully, that history doesn't keep repeating itself. <laughs>
2: Hello
0: and welcome to the Atana Cast. As almost always, I'm Alex Roy, the Director of Special Operations at Argo AI, whom I do not represent on this show. Also, the founder of the Human Driving Association and the producer of the greatest cannonball run documentary of all time, and also the only one Apex, the secret race across America.
2: And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the author of Ludicrous, the unvarnished story of Tesla Motors. Um, and I also <laughs> have spent too much time. On Twitter, um, <laughs> blowing up terrible arguments about driving automation technology because you're a hater. Because I'm a hater,
1: and I am Kirsten Korosek, transportation editor over at TechCrunch. And yeah, Ed, you're such a hater. And so this week we're going to change things up a little bit. There's just way too much Tesla like nonsense, craziness to even like start addressing. And quite frankly, I'm just not in the mood. So. We're gonna shelve that. So to all the all the folks who, you know, are tuning in and they've got their popcorn and they've got their their Twitter, you know, page open and ready to like lash out at Ed. We're just not gonna go there this week. Um, so just wait till next week. Save it.
2: Save it for next week. Yeah. No, we, there's, a, there is a lot of stuff happening and we actually do really need to talk about some of it, but um, I, we're all in agreement, not this week. Um, And there's other things to talk about. Like if, if yes. anything, the, the, one of the most annoying things about Tesla is that like, it keeps people from talking about things that are actually much more interesting a lot of the time. So Kirsten, yeah. you've been doing the reporting. So uh, you, and you've got, you've got a, a bunch of stories. Out, yeah. So.
1: And actually, I, it hasn't just been, it's just not, just not me. Um, I have a whole team. So that's makes things a lot easier. Probably one of the more interesting stories, and we just haven't focused on micromobility much lately, but micromobility um, continues to be an important piece of the, you know, total transportation ecosystem. And we've seen a lot of rising and falling stars and sometimes disappearing ones. And in this case, what I'm talking about is Bolt Mobility. And this is the company that was, uh, is associated with uh, Usain Bolt. And they pretty much just totally disappeared. Um, they had contracts um, with um, a number of cities across the U.S. And they basically ceased operations and kind of have vanished into the ether um, they've left behind um, vehicles. They um, have not answered calls, and not just to us, but from the city officials. So we got a tip from a reader of my newsletter and said, hey, um, we're a vendor, um, and we just like can't get a hold of them. And I was wondering if you knew what was going on. And so um, our reporter, Rebecca Bellin, chased it down. and. They're gone in at least eight U.S. markets as of last week. Um, and it is kind of fascinating because they had this huge run-up. They acquired the assets of Last Mile Holdings, which um, opened 48 new markets in the, um, to the micromobility operator. And they seemed like on this ascendancy. And now they're just like gone. <laughs> and no one seems to know where.
2: I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, were, was Bolt ever like? Were were they always in the micro? And I'm not, you know, I kind of dabble in micro mobility, um, less focused on it than than other areas. And like, I kind of got the sense that Bolt was never like seen as super serious. Like there was always a little mimi quality to it. I don't know. Am I am I wrong about that?
1: Well, yeah, um, a little bit, um, but they were making acquisitions. Like when they, I, I really thought that when they made that acquisition of last mile holdings, it was surprising to me because of your feelings and thoughts about like what you just said. Yeah, And I was like, wow. Okay. Um, so yeah, I never put them in the same category as like a lime or a bird, um, or tear, any of those, but here they were like making this, um, acquisition. So, um, they did issue a statement on their website um, as of August 3rd. And, you know, they launched in 2018. Um, and they said in this statement that, um, I'll read it here on June 30th, 2022, with equity investors failing to deliver on committed investment, Bolt Mobility was forced to significantly st- scale back operations. Prior to this decision, Bolt Mobility had every intention of remaining fully operational and even to expand into additional markets. Any suggestion otherwise is wholly inaccurate. And as of July 2022, they were running day to day operations in 25 of 33 markets. So here's the issue that I have that might very well be the case. They did not communicate that to anyone, and they just kind of like, piece, they kind of ghosted a lot of cities. Um, and so there are the reality of, um, investors not, you know, not continuing their investment, I guess this can be a reality, but there is also like how you handle that situation. And it doesn't seem like they handled that quite well. All right.
0: Can I Yes, shine in here? Please. So, you know, People complain sometimes uh, about the quality of public transit. Some cities have great transit; some it's less optimal. And sometimes it's great in one place and not so great in another. But fundamentally, public transit um, exists. It doesn't just disappear overnight. Although routes may change. And you know, I'm a New Yorker. I remember as a kid, you know, people complaining about a specific bus route in my neighborhood um, removed a stop and added a different stop. Okay, that's neither here nor there. But fundamentally, public transit runs as it's a public service when a private company enters a city you know they have to make a decision it's like what service are they going to roll out first and how is it going to grow how is it going to integrate with the city the difference between a pilot program and a service the pilot program is just that it's a pilot it may not last forever because the learnings are extracted from the pilot once you launch a service if you want to you know actually do good for a community the service has to remain because people may take a job or move based on that service and an expectation that's going to remain and that service could be just uh, for commuters it could be something that takes people to the doctor who knows but this is the difference between like a good actor trying in the private sector opening a transportation company whose product is not just say an autonomous vehicle but the platform that enables people to get from a to b better than they did before you arrived. And now we're starting to see who the good actors are and who are are not as we go from pilots to service-service. But I think we're going to see a lot more companies in the coming years reveal themselves to have never really cared about how they affect communities as they try to find product-market fit without um, earning the trust of the community and sticking with it for the the long haul. Uh, You know, I remember uh there was no there was no public you couldn't take the bus from where i grew up to my school it would have been like a public bus would have been like two transfers like an hour and a half the subway was an hour and change it was a private bus service that was 40 minutes that private bus service was in service I, i think the company operated for like 30 years you could count on them and it was just a crappy rusty old bus with a driver who always showed up reliability is more important in mobility and transportation than technology, but put technology and reliability together, and now you have the future. So i I, I think cities need to be really careful about who they sign up um, to do business with, because the city themselves didn't necessarily invest in transit, or didn't have a budget to do so. Because I think companies are some, com- some companies are new great, and some companies are just not in it for the long haul. Now um, that's that's my rant of the day.
2: So I would I would go another level on that and and suggest that it's partly the companies or you know the the culture, whatever that's that's part of the issue here. But it's fascinating that they sort of throw their investors under the bus. Um, you just don't see it that often, right? Where they're like, oh no, we'd be, you know, doing all this great stuff our you know, like scumbag investors actually wrote the checks they said they were going to write. Like, that was actually like kind of refreshingly like real. Uh, but, but it 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 points to sort of kind of what to me is is part of the underlying issue, which is that like I do I I, I think it's it's possible to reconcile sort of tech startups and sort of public. Because what you're saying, Alex, is, is, is essentially something that I think we've, we've kind of talked a bit about, which is that like these mobility – on-demand mobility services and really like whether you're talking about robo-taxis or or or, or scooters or e-bikes or whatever it is, it's infrastructure, right? Like, like if you have a relationship with a city, you know, that's infrastructure and like infrastructure and like how it's funded in particular – is like kind of the, and, and operated and every, like everything about it. It's it's very, very, very different than, um, than, you know, venture capitally funded like tech startups. Right. And so I think intrinsically, like part of this, the, the, the underlying issue, right. Is that like investors, like venture capitalists fund companies because they see this like huge up potential upside and like, there may be a lot of risks, but the important thing is, is that there's this big pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And like infrastructure businesses fundamentally just aren't really pots of gold at the end of the rainbow kind of kind of businesses. I mean, certain toll roads maybe or something like that. You know what I mean? But like in general, infrastructure is something that exists to unlock value, right? Like, like good infrastructure makes a city operate better and thereby creates value that you know, the investors don't necessarily get to capture, which is why government does it, right? And that's why, and and it also requires, as you were saying, this like steady, committed approach. Whereas in venture capital, as soon as investors lose faith, they're like, no, we're not actually writing that that check. And boom, like the company just disappears. And so like, there's a really, there's a really fundamental disconnect. I think there's a lot of potential good that can be done if we can think about like, if, if there are ways to reconcile the good from the one, approach with the good of the other but like fundamentally i think it's the it's the tech companies who want to be city partners and and more importantly their investors and like i think the founders in particular if you want to have partnerships with cities you maybe need to think about how you raise money in a way that doesn't put you in this like impermanent state and chasing these like crazy goals but allows you to have that kind of steady committed approach i don't know if that can be done
1: i think this is what happens when like a buzzy idea meets infrastructure in which the public interfaces with, or you know, you know, mixes it up with. So it's one thing to like have an app that you know maybe provides entertainment or some sort of like messaging, uh, some gamification that like suddenly stops working. Like it's a bummer, but like it's a little different when you're talking about an object or product that is used for people and public streets to get around and city and cities committing to that. Like cities going, okay, fine. Like these are the rules. All right. We're excited. And also the big thing with some of these smaller micromobility companies, they were all hitting middle markets. So you're talking not about the big cities, but like actually some cities that could probably really use this kind of um sort of extra piece of um mobility and and so then it sets it up for any other micromobility company that ever wants to come back in here into those cities it's going to make it a lot harder um you know bird is publicly traded they they've had their own issues right but they're not um as far as we know doing anything like they're in the public sphere and because they're a publicly traded company so You know, back in June, they they did um, receive word from the New York Stock Exchange that its share price was not in compliance. Um, So basically, uh, common stock has to be for a listed company has to be at least a dollar over the course of a consecutive thirty day trading period, and they um, got notice that it was not. It is currently trading at fifty four cents a share. So if anyone wants to pick up BIRD for 160 mil, that's about all its market cap is right now. Um, but that shows how hard and difficult it is to unlock. Like, So it's not just about VC investors pulling out money. It's also shareholders because it's based on an expectation that if you deliver a product, um, and a very difficult product at that, that eventually you'll make money. And um, you know, we'll see what happens with BIRD. But I think we're going to see a lot of this sort of shaking out um, in micromobility world. We saw some consolidation. I think we're going to see more fallout.
0: So, you know, this reminds me of, uh, uh, there's a story I think in Wired recently about a company that made retinal implants for people who, who, who couldn't see. And, like, people ponied up hundreds of thousands of dollars for these implants, and then the company shut down. And now they have to go to third... either. Go to third parties that have, did not put them in to get to maintain them or get them ser- removed, which is a whole different ball of wax. The, I mean, this is also uh, Cory Doctorow on Twitter was talking about how Epson bricks their printers and they get to a certain point in their their life cycle. Uh, all of this is like a function of um, uh, of trust. It's, uh, autonomous vehicle companies always talk about how they want to earn trust, and they and that's. Really, a euphemism for safety. They want to be seen as like the safe operator, and as, and if it's safe, it's good. But the, if you break the trust of a city that uh, who's you know investing in transit infrastructure, and people are moving and taking jobs based on on the, a level of trust that is then destroyed, that company and the principles behind that company can't really go back. That city, maybe ever. And this is really, it's really wrong. Um, Companies, I mean, to do right is not just about making the vehicle safe. It's about making sure the city can trust that it will be there in the future. Uh, And that's just as important as the safety.
1: That's actually a really good point is that I think that some of the... So cities first got a big wake-up call and kind of smacked around a little bit when ride hailing like burst onto the scene. And we're all like, oh, they learned their lesson and when scooters came on board, they like really started exerting their power and learning. And now the third wave would potentially, third and fourth wave is potentially autonomous vehicles and uh, what I call future of flight. And <laughs> and in those yeah. and in those two cases, like you, the stakes are even higher. Um, than I would argue than scooters and ride hailing. So. I don't know, maybe, hopefully that history doesn't keep repeating itself.
0: So uh, I, you know, I always say I don't represent Argo on this show, and I don't, but I am going to just point out something that I work on a bit at Argo, and uh, it's really important. You know, the uh, deploy first, uh, you know, apologize later, which we've seen in Ride Hail and with scooters, that's really not going to work in the AV sector because to put AVs in a city is not just about a software update. You need you need real estate you need to hire stacks of people and you need if you want to integrate into the fabric of a city to build relationships in that city not just with say the mayor or um, you know a uh, like a single community but anywhere you to the operate. operates your stakeholders aren't just people who ride in the car there's everyone outside the car who lives in the neighborhood where the cars roll past and so if you want to set up in a city and earn trust beyond the safety of the vehicle itself you need to like plant seeds years in advance of deployment because the business in order to justify its investment in the city needs to the city to invest back in the company, a level of long-term commitment that transcends multiple elections. It has to, or all the technology in the world is not going to, is not going to build you the moat you need to be a a generational business. And that's what we're talking about. And you imagine if the Otis elevator, and these guys offered free elevators And uh, back in 1890, and skyscrapers started to go up with these free elevators in them. And then Otis decided they just didn't want to maintain the elevators anymore. And there was no service manual. And sorry, you can't buy them; they're just being shut off. Build the cities would cease to to function. And this is why you know being a good actor and building these relationships that transcend elections with communities is maybe even a bigger moat than the technology itself. Because imagine a world where two or three or four companies developed quote-unquote, safe autonomous vehicles. The winner of those four companies, or three companies, is going to be the one that who, where the community wants to ride in them because they know the company's going to be there next year. And that's the long-term strategy of a winning company in, in this sector.
1: Well, that's why it's so um, important, not just on a safety aspect, but for these companies to be very aware of their like cash burn. like. To make sure that they still exist. Because um, possibly one of the most more expensive sectors to be in and employing people is in the AV sector. It's just incredible. Like, so when a company raises, let's say, $100 million and, and they're an AV company, I'm like, that runway is actually a lot shorter than people realize. Because when you start looking at what engineers are paid and experts to get these types of things and then scale that operation, that's really expensive. Um, so it's not just a safety issue. It's also like looking at their balance sheet and making sure that, and also picking the right investors, like from the earliest, earliest stages and then deciding, do I want to go public or not? I mean, that's why companies like Aurora are kind of in a tough spot because on the one hand, they skipped over the, having to constantly go back to VCs, which is, you know, potentially good and went to the, you know, huge amount of capital possible in the public markets, but it's super difficult when you have a when you are working on frontier tech, in which you're not going to have any real revenue coming in for a really long time. It's just like super tricky in the world of AVs because you're getting people to place essentially bets on you when you don't have an operational product yet, and you're potentially years away. So it's safety, it's operational cost efficiencies it's like there's so much that can go wrong um, on the way to you know launching and then you launch and gee do you have enough money to like operate and maintain operations safely <laughs> like then that's the next level so it's it's a to me like one of the trickier businesses like micromobility is nothing compared to what the comp- the complexity of operating Autonomous vehicles at scale, and we just haven't seen that yet. I mean, we already see like what Cruise a little bit and Waymo a little bit, and that certainly hasn't been without incident. And you know, what goes a you. long
0: way. <laughs> it's better if he's muted. You know, it goes a long way. <laughs> uh, and this, uh, uh,
2: uh, is is the mute button? Uh,
0: is is understanding that <laughs> like, being, being a good corporate, a good corporate citizen, and a smart like product manager and corporate strategist is not just about building the tech and then sending your policy team out so I you work on regulatory capture. <laughs> like, like what you want to be doing is something that I have a small hand in is you want to go to the city where you intend to operate. and You want to go make friends with the community on a local level, the churches, the mosques, the synagogues, whatever, the schools, every single piece of the city that isn't necessarily, um, you know, reflected in popular media narratives where people actually live and work and talk to them. Just ask them like, what would make your neighborhood better? And then from that, Go to your product team and start telling them, here's what we're going to need in a year or two or three. And then when the people start to see the pilot roll out and then you get the feedback, they realize they're stakeholders too, even when they never get in the cars. It's their uncle or brother or cousin or kids who get in the cars. And it's just – it's incredible to me that that's not seen by every company as core to the business because it really is. Rant over.
2: So, so, and the, the one thing I want to add to is just going back to the the funding type, right? Because I think, and, and you know, I'm, I want to be clear, I'm not, I'm, I'm comparing different things here. These are not the same, but I think if you look at sort of how the relationship between how things are funded and and what kind of businesses they they have to be because of that funding, um, it, it's kind of interesting. And so, you know, you could take any number of level four AV developers and like, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of you know money being raised to push this technology forward a lot of what's being funded is is r and d essentially or, or really research <laughs> a lot of it is research like like hopefully it gets from research to development to 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 right but like there's a lot of uncertainty about that in part because the goals are ambitious and the goals have to be ambitious in order to raise the money right so you're talking about operating you know a a mobility service in a giant domain an entire city or like big parts of a city right and like that's a yeah i think people really underappreciate how ambitious that is and again like that's a function of the sort of the the, the reality the venture capital is gambling right and to and to to take big risk you have to think there's a big payoff on the other side of it and i'm not saying that's bad that just is what it is and it and it creates the kinds of companies that it creates and we, there's a track record now this is not brand new stuff Right? Silicon Valley has been around for a while and we've seen this and the pattern is pretty clear there. And I would contrast it to, and again, I want to be very clear, these are different things and and they're d- different companies that are doing different things. And I'm not even going to name names here, but like there are companies that work in automation and specifically driving automation who started out more in the defense space. And their funding method was we go out and we get a government contract to automate something very specific and then we automate that. We're not creating technology that can, you know, be applied to automate all kinds of things. And big, it's like literally just you know, we have this logistical thing, and we want to automate this specific part of it. Here's the contract. You bid on that contract. You get it. You get. So, so you have a more stable source of funding. There's not really a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Other than that, over time and doing these these stable contracts, you know, your organization builds. You know, very genuine know-how and like tribal knowledge around the, the, this other kind of automation. So again, like different kinds of technologies, different kinds of businesses. But again, I think at the root of it is is the, the money and how it comes from and what strings are attached with it and what form it takes matters. It's all very intimately related, and I think it, it ties back to this this question of, of of the what is the relationship between public and private. And I think it's you know because there have been so many big. Game-changing technologies in in our lifetimes. It's easy to kind of hope that technology is just going to be sort of an easy button. Um, but this is what's called solutionism, and I think that like the idea that technology is just going to reconcile the the, the fundamental differences between public interest and public infrastructure and private gambling. <laughs> You know, like like those, like I, you know, th- those may be somewhat irreconcil- irreconcilable. And I think it, to to me, the lesson is: let's not say that every problem has to be solved with gambling. Some have to be, right? Developing new crazy technology, taking big moonshots, or whatever. Like you need that gambling spirit, but that doesn't apply well to everything. And I think this bolt thing really proves it. And I think that you know the companies that learned early on in the micromobility Thing. and by the way, I remember now the reason why I thought bolt was sketchy is because they launched in 2018 it was like late 2018 the year of the scooter they were late and 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 launching at hype at peak hype which is which is never a good sign and but because the other companies did a lot of crummy stuff and almost blew up their relationships with cities but they learned too late maybe mostly. that that, that mostly. those mostly <laughs> that those relationships do matter and that they are yeah. essentially in a public infrastructure business and bolt didn't um
1: yeah. Um, well, next uh, so topic. We well, no, no, no. We did a natural segue into AVs. And so I wanted to mention one other wrinkle that, um, or I guess challenge, speed bump, or whatever pun you want to use to the AV sector is also talent. And specifically, what I'm kind of hearing and seeing which isn't, um, we saw a lot in like, I would say between 2017 and maybe pre-COVID, a lot of this like moving from one company to another, a lot of the poaching wars, um, maybe people who were superstar engineers being like, I could get more money over there. And it was never necessarily an indication of how well or healthy a company was necessarily that they were leaving, although sometimes it was. But it was oftentimes the employee like, Seeking out greener, literally greener pastures. Um, but now I'm seeing a couple things. Um, a bunch of people who left because their companies failed or they got, you know, they just left the industry, like kind of peak, um, not peak hype, but um, in, during the trough of disillusionment. So, like 2020, are now re entering. So, we had two of those guests on last week, Josh Hartung and like Stefan, um, two different companies um, in our last episode. But also I'm seeing people leaving the sector altogether who have a lot of institutional knowledge and were, you know, important to those companies. Uh, so Dan Chu over at Waymo is the chief product officer is leaving and he's not going to another competitor like you might expect. He's going to healthcare industry. Now, is it a non-compete? And so in a year from now, we're going to see him show up somewhere else, possibly, Um and in, in Waymo, I was already tapped someone, actually someone who was on our stage over at TC Mobility um, um, event in May. Um, his name is Saswat and he's, so they're bringing someone up internally, but Ed, I think you're hearing also like just people leaving the AV industry altogether. And I'm wondering, does that pose a risk overall to the industry, not to a particular company per se, but like to the, because there's like a brain drain or is it a good thing like that that the older actors are leaving and new fresh faces are coming in.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's part of it is people leaving. Part of it is also people just talking about leaving people who, you know, are very passionate about, about it and very thoughtful and do have a lot of, um, you know, they've worked on people who have worked on like underappreciated but very real parts of this challenge. Um, and again, I think, you know, just, and again, like, you know, the policy, for example, part of it, is there? There hasn't been a lot actually happening in terms of like regulation, and there's you know a lot of aspects to it, and um, but like that's it's a very complex, difficult part of the AV problem, and it's like super underappreciated, and there are people I think who have like worked on that, and and certainly other areas as well who who have learned a lot in their times of like grappling with those challenges, um, who are, and, and to hear some of those people you've been talking about. Not just leaving the company, because again, like people bounce around all the time, and they or have been for the last few years, for the most part. But um, but leaving the space altogether. So yeah, I, I I'm concerned about it. Like it's not. I don't think it's like a an epidemic or anything. I think this is like it's just sort of some of the early signs. But um, you know, on, on the other hand, too, like you know, maybe maybe younger people will come into the space and, and provide some fresh perspective. I, you know, I, who knows? But um, it's a it's an interesting wrinkle. I'm guessing Alex can't really say much about this.
0: Well, all I'll say is it, there's a lot to be said for management teams that remain consistent over time at the top. Yeah, and <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Sure,
1: but there, but <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, okay. So uh, well, well, seeing... actually,
0: okay. Let me rephrase that. It, okay, when a fundamental mistake has been made. Uh, and I, I, you know, I try to be nice on the show and not like directly attack individuals or companies. But when a catastrophic and fundamental error has been made, it is essential that a company make a change that is um, of equivalent um, wisdom and gravitas to the error. And so uh, sometimes scapegoating a single person often ain't going to cut it. What was it? Ro- Mark Roskind, formerly of Netside, now he's over at Zooks and Safety. He said, You can place blame or you can have safety. And placing blame on a single person rarely cha- changes or solves the, the foundational issue of why something became unsafe. And so having a consistent team over time that delivers consistently p- good results matters. And if a single person is out, there's probably more to the story.
1: Okay, but let's be clear on here. Yeah, there is no, as far as I know, any safety issue with Waymo that prompted Dan Chu to leave and go to another company. So Didn't say
0: there was. I, I, in fact, I was very much speaking about another company that was okay.
1: not Waymo. So, so, so I Waymo's had gonna... very
0: consistent leadership over time, and that's a positive sign.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I just want to be clear with that one because I was using that as an example to talk about like what was happening in the industry overall. But as far as I can tell, with the Waymo thing, it was just like one person who's been in the company for a very long time had their career at Google prior for like 14 years, and then now is leaving. And so it is big news in the AV world, but nothing related to like some sort of um, you know misjudgment or anything like that. It just it's no, a career no, no,
0: move. Nothing. Nothing there. I would say though that. There are at least two other companies that have had some, um, <laughs> I would say, suboptimal public statements recently around safety um, because of incidents that occurred that really did not handle it well. And to me, that's indicative of other issues. Got it. And it's not, te- it's not, not Tesla, not Tesla. Although they have right. their issues.
1: <laughs> yeah, they have their own issues. Next week, Alex. Uh, Next week. Yeah. So. I, I, I do think that there's, I'm not going to say it's like a coming storm for AVs because I think they're going to have plenty of storms. It's not going to just be one, but I do think that the consistency in executives, um, but also as um, Alex mentioned, when something does go awry, like whose shoulders does that fall on? Um, it really should fall on the entire company, quite honestly, but it generally goes to one or two people, either the person in charge of that program or, you know, all the way up to the top of the CEO. Um, and if it's some sort of like safety issue in which someone is injured, then it becomes even more complex. I think we're going to see like fallout from that, but like separately from safety, I think we're going to continue to see sort of like this shifting and moving around the AV industry. And I haven't decided whether this is a bad thing, um, because you're losing institutional knowledge or just par for the course. And it really won't be like meaningful overall to the industry. I will say this one thing, I had a
2: really interesting conversation um, the other day with with someone who's at a a smaller startup um, in driving automation broadly sector, a smaller startup though, and, you know, limited runway, you know. And um, the founder of this company, you know, is really a a very intelligent, uh, you know, uh, unsurprisingly, but sensitive and and thoughtful person um, who has sort of looked at things like, like Elon Musk um, and and other sort of like cautionary tales from from tech, and I think you know there's been a lot of them on TV lately, and I think there's kind of more of a growing awareness of, of, of some of this stuff and some of the the negativity that comes along with it. And you know, this person, this founder, really, really wants to not be that person, right? Doesn't want to lie, doesn't want to misrepresent, wants to feel good about everything they say to their investors and to to the public and everyone. And like these are all like wonderful, wonderful things. But also, as that runway get compresses, like all of a, the pressure goes up to make something happen. Right then, it be, right it, it, it's easy to be principled about things when you've got plenty of runway. And the smaller your runway gets, the more pressure, and the more you as a founder are forced to choose. Like, what is this company worth to me? What am I willing to do to make sure this company keeps going? And like, kind of what came out of that conversation was sort of like, you know. It, it, one of the, you know, good people do bad things all the time. And a lot of it is because they really don't want to do the bad thing until they get to that position where they don't have a choice and, and the wolf is at the door and they have to take extreme steps. And I think that like one of the more underrated founder skills, maybe they've just, again, something that just kind of came out of this kind of really interesting conversation is like maybe, maybe one of the more underrated founder skills is how to gradually over time think about Focusing more, narrowing the focus and being proactive so that you're you don't go from we have all of this ambition and this much runway, and I, you know, we can make it and we can do it the right way, to like, you know, to to that getting unsustainable, and oh my God, now we have to like something has to give and we have to take extreme steps. That 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 focusing over time and that being proactive about like maybe I do need to be a little more aggressive about marketing something uh, again. Absolutely. And I'm not saying, you know, clearly as someone who's like critiques, you know, the overselling of, of tech and, and overhype in and the long term negative effects, I'm not saying people should hype more, but like it's not as simple as just never hype either, or like always undersell because if you always undersell, you will find yourself with the wolf at the door. And I think it's just really interesting to see like how people struggle with these dynamics in, in, in different ways. Um,
1: well, speaking of dynamics and how companies handle it, we do. We should just briefly touch on probably the, one of the more recent things, which is EV SPACs, sort of like the continued struggles of EV SPACs, and sort of maybe overstating, like <laughs> having maybe stars in their eyes when they presented their initial investor decks and now coming back down to earth and being like, oh, actually, we can't do these seven different things. And, and um, to be clear
2: really clear just to interject that I was not talking about any of the companies we're about to discuss the, the company, the founder situation <laughs> I just talked about. None of these companies were about to, I, I promise. Uh, right. So anyway, I, it, was more, I,
1: it was more like um, we have been talking about this whole episode about in, in different sectors. So micro-mobility, AVs, and now EVs, sort of the growing pains that come with that and what we're seeing happening. So um, today, or, so for folks listening to this next week, which will be for them this week. um, But Arrival um, had their second quarter earnings and, you know, they had, we've had them um, on TechCrunch stage and also um, Avinash, the president of Arrival on our show. Um, Really interesting company and and some big plans. Um, And those plans have been very much narrowed um, as of this quarter. So their, their losses widened, not surprising. Um, they are a growth company um, and they're spending a lot of money. But notably, they had their bus certified, their electric bus and their van certified. And they were planning on doing a car just designed for ride hailing, um, specifically through a partnership with Uber in the UK. And they pretty much put all of that on pause just to focus on the van. So their, I think, initial investor deck Their plan was, I think, something like by the end of 2022, like to be to have produced at least 4,000 vehicles that was downgraded to like 400. And um, in the earnings call, it was now 20 vehicles, (laughs) um, 20 vans by the end of this year. So, huge, huge, huge cut. Um, Very, very different. And um, prior to this show, we were talking about how. Actually, the question of are you doing too many things um, came up, right, with our interview with Avinash. And I guess we have the answer now. Like, they've had to make some decisions. They're restructuring their business. Um, They are laying some people off. And they're focused on one thing instead of three things. It is super painful. I think that it's probably the right move, though. What do you guys think?
2: I mean, this this is kind of... Exactly what I was talking about, and again, I was not talking about arrival um but yeah, I mean I, I I think you know, and actually there was a um I don't know if you you saw this, but there was a story about a um a founder on linkedin or or like a CEO or something on LinkedIn who like did this like teary, vulnerable post about Ter- how to lay people off so and he's cringy. like he's like, I made this decision back in January. And, and like, I like I just stuck with it too long. I should have just like pulled out of this decision earlier and now I have to lay people off and like, and then and making it about his display of emotion and like, and and like online cloud. And it was so gross, but I think it's like, that's a, the counterpoint of what I'm talking to. It's like, this is why, right? Like you have to be able to know like, oh shit, like things are getting real. And like, yes, I know it's been good to just do more and more more up to this point, but like. That's the deal in, in venture capital, right? You're either growing or you're or you're dying, and if you're not growing, you know you got to recognize that really fast, and you got to make really hard choices as quickly as you can. And like I think we asked, I I, mean, I want to go listen to our arrival episode again, but I think we asked him, some one of us, I think asked him. And I know we've talked about this that like there's a lot of amazing stuff about that company. It just felt like they were doing a little too much. Um, I'm kind of curious now to go back and listen to Avinash's yeah, <laughs> answer we'll to. to that.
1: Well, and and I I um, Avinash is great. He's like you know, it's pretty direct, um, and he was you know very clear like that. They were trying to do a lot, um, but I don't think that you can get away from the numbers. And you were talking about like the reality in VC. Well, they're they're a publicly traded company now, so the realities are even starker because investors will pull out. I do think that the premise of the company is super interesting and I want to see what happens with it. Like I want to see it actually become a company that delivers products and see those products on the road because I've been in the vans. It's a very cool idea. um, Interesting to me, but a cool idea doesn't mean it'll be successful. So hopefully what happens with this is that they go, okay, we made a lot of noise. We made a lot of progress. A lot of people got interested and invested in us. And now the realities of just how much capital we have to pull off one of these things correctly um, is right in front of our faces. Um, and so hopefully, I mean, it seems like this was is the right move, the correct move. Um, of course, you could double down and be like, nope, and go all three and maybe hit all three correctly. And it's like a huge success. But I think the risk is much higher for failure or like the probability of failure is much higher if you try to do all three. Um, and especially because you could end up with three like mediocre products as opposed to like one well executed one. Um, and so I think that they made the correct move. We've seen so much fallout with other EV specs who you can't look at them all equally because some are like absolute shit shows of companies. Um, that are problematic and repeatedly being investigated and by the sec and the DOJ. And there's all these problems. And then there are companies that are just, uh, a typical struggling company in growth that needs to pick a product and is burning a lot of cash to get there, you know? And I think I would put rival in the latter category of that.
2: Alex.
0: And on that note,
1: well yeah i i i I definitely
2: i mean the the scary part about about downturns is that you lose good companies uh as well as bad companies and and it always happens and and oftentimes the good companies go first and it, it it always sucks to see i definitely think arrival like i said they to me the the major concern i always had about them was just focus i think everything else they're doing is super exciting and um and i really hope they get a chance uh i really i really do um and I think, I think what they're doing is, is unique enough that, um, if, if they can even remotely pull it off, like they'll, they'll be able to keep it going. So, um, but yeah, I think like, you know, the art of de-risking is, uh, it's what, what the times we live in are, are kind of all about. So, um, it'll be interesting to see how, how that happens more. And, um, also it will be interesting to talk about Tesla next week. Okay. Oh, Don't God. get too excited.
1: Oh, I need uh, to, I need to rest hmm. up for that one. Um, and, and, um, But I do think this is like a good reminder of all the other news going out there. And sort of, um, as Ed sort of just mentioned, sort of the we're in the era of de risking and how do we survive? Um, I think that that's the mode that a lot of companies are in. And the ones that spotted it early on or just have so much cash that doesn't even matter (laughs) um, uh, are in a much better position. Um, But a lot of companies are scrambling right now. And I think we're going to see an interesting third quarter as a result. A lot.
2: Yeah. I mean, if, if you do have a, a fan base that's passionate about, you can do the opposite of, of de-risk and you can actually just, you know, solicit people to volunteer their children to be used as, to, as crash test dummies. Um, so you know, that's, that's also one way you don't have to de-risk. But there you go. Now we're talking about and on that.
1: Risk, <laughs> yeah. And on that note, uh, thanks to our Atonicast audience for listening to another episode.